Hi, I'm Jamie Mackay, and today we have a very special 11-minute animal health podcast about hypocalcemia and its impact on health parameters of dairy cows. I'd like to introduce veterinarian Dr. Barry Bradford. Here's Barry. My name is Barry Bradford. I'm a professor at Michigan State University. I'm going to talk today a little bit about uh, some new information on hypocalcemia and associations with health and productivity outcomes uh, after the transition period. So, most people involved with the dairy industry are familiar with milk fever. It's been around forever. Uh, it's been a challenge and a headache for dairy producers as long as the dairy industry has existed. Uh, one of the brighter spots, though, in the last 20 years in dairy science and management has been the decrease in incidence of milk fever really around the world. And I think we can attribute a lot of this to our better understanding of calcium metabolism and the discovery of some really innovative strategies to help the cow manage that transition into lactation. So we know uh, that the dairy cow at the onset of lactation goes from needing roughly 13 grams a day of calcium to go into the growing fetus to essentially overnight uh, producing and secreting as much as 23 grams per day uh, or more and just the first day of lactation. That, that would be a typical number for a modern Holstein cow. So that's a 10 gram per day jump in calcium requirements. Uh, and this happens in a cow that if you add up all the calcium running through her bloodstream, adds up to about three grams per day. So in that first few days of lactation, she's having to completely turn over her blood calcium uh, every two to three hours. Um, and it's the magnitude of change that's the real problem. So she can handle that demand. In fact, she does it uh, quite well uh, within a few days after starting lactation. The demand doesn't really drop very much, if it does at all. But the problem is the way she handles that demand is by greatly increasing absorption of calcium uh, as she's eating more feed and, and probably consuming a higher calcium diet. Uh, but importantly, she also does it by pulling on her stored calcium in bone. So bone isn't just a structural organ. It's a really important bank, if you will, for calcium to help keep blood calcium concentrations in the normal range uh, during times where absorption of calcium uh, can't increase rapidly enough or uh, demand jumps quickly. The problem with that uh, mechanism is when changes happen so fast, the mechanisms to pull that calcium out of bone can't respond quickly enough. And that's partly because one of the key mechanisms involved in that is to actually increase the abundance of a certain type of cell that tears down the bone matrix. So these osteoclasts, they're called, have to be recruited uh, from bloodstream in a uh, in a naive form. They have to be differentiated into functioning osteoclasts and that process takes a couple of days before they can start actually secreting the enzymes and the acid to break down bone matrix uh, and release the calcium and FOS. And that's why we have that, that window of time in the first say three days of lactation where at least two-thirds of our cows, and this is in well-managed herds, uh, are going to have some dip in blood calcium uh, below what we would call normal calcium concentrations. Now, again, the magnitude of that dip isn't what it used to be in most herds because we use strategies like 
feeding anionic diets before calving, which essentially tricks the cow into turning on those bone resorption mechanisms in advance. So then she's got the cells there functioning to already tear down matrix, and they just need to speed up then once the onslaught of, of milk calcium outflow occurs. So that's really why we're seeing a big drop in clinical milk fever in the last few decades. So that's a huge step forward. Okay, but the problem is, um, during the same time where we've seen this drop in clinical cases, we've gathered a lot more information on the downstream effects of other problems that might be linked to mild hypocalcemia. Okay, so we used to say if a cow kept blood calcium above, say, 1.5 millimolar total blood calcium through the transition period, she was avoiding some of the real major problems that we have uh, with calcium in the transition period. But people have done big studies in the last decade, uh, including as many as 6,000 cows in a study, just to look at associations between what happens to blood calcium in the first few days after calving, and then what are the long-term outcomes for those cows. Um, they can do this in objective ways, and they can use uh, what's called a receiver operating characteristic analysis, which again would be an objective way to look at clinical data and health outcomes to allow you to objectively ask at what concentration can you draw a line and make the clearest distinction between animals that are going to have a positive and a negative outcome. <clears throat> so by doing that we avoid sort of historical um, sort of lines that have been drawn in the sand that were based on much less data and based on sort of observation of a small number of animals. So if we look across these studies, and there have been probably eight or nine of them that have used thousands of animals and objectively looked at cut points, uh, I could rattle these off for you quickly. We, we have a study of over 2,000 cows in Canada that showed a calcium concentration that dropped below just 2.2 millimolar, so very small change from the typical uh, you know, 2.5 that we'd target for normal blood calcium. Um, a drop below that threshold in the first week was linked to a threefold increase in risk of displaced abomasum. So a study linking with metritis found a cut point of 2.15. For ketosis, the cut point was 2.14. And probably the most economically relevant studies, there's a herd of a little over a thousand cows in, uh, sorry, a study of a little over a thousand cows in Germany um, that showed uh, blood calcium in the first 48 hours after calving, if it dropped below 1.9 millimolar, um, those cows had a 35% risk of getting pregnant on first AI versus 65 for cows that maintain calcium above, above that 1.9 threshold. Um, even more relevant economically, if they look at it, and a study that looked at uh, culling risk, almost 6,000 cows, 30 herds, um, cows that dip below 2.2 millimolar in week one had 50% greater risk of being cold than uh, cows with normal calcium and in week two if they drop below even 2.3 uh, they had a 2.2 fold greater risk of being cold than cows with normal calcium so what's the big point of all these uh, big association studies we have strong evidence that even cows that don't show milk fever if they're experiencing these mild hypocalcemia situations, uh, they're more likely to have 
uh, problems later on that are tied to poor welfare, poor productivity, uh, and risk of leaving the herd. So economically, it's very impactful, even if we don't see a lot of clinical uh, milk fever. So I think it's also important then to briefly address are these links, these associations really cause an effect? Because just showing an association doesn't demonstrate that. It may be that the low calcium is some sort of adaptation mechanism that she's using. But we have actually seen some studies address that as well. So one that I want to highlight, uh, an Italian Martinez and colleagues in 2014 published a study where they used a uh, calcium chelating agent called EGTA. Um, and if it's infused at the right concentration, uh, and done very carefully, it can bind up uh, a lot of the circulating calcium and create an artificial hypocalcemia uh, in a later lactation cow. And so in this study, they were able to create this artificial scenario uh, over 24 hours and um, dropped uh, blood total calcium by about 0.5 millimolar. So again, going from a normal range down to just below the thresholds that we've just talked about. So what did they see in those cows? Two really key things that I think point out that this is a causative factor in disease. One, uh, when they looked at neutrophils, which are a really important innate immune cell involved in fighting mastitis and metritis and most of the infectious disorders we deal with in the dairy industry, they showed that the cows that had artificially dropped calcium concentrations uh, by three days post-challenge, um, those neutrophils were less functional. They did not engulf bacteria as well, and they didn't kill bacteria as well. Uh, secondly, and maybe even more importantly, during that 24-hour calcium suppression challenge, those cows that were getting the sequestration agent to drop blood calcium ate 42% less feed, a 42% drop in dry matter intake uh, during that challenge day, and they recovered very quickly. But that's probably some of the best evidence uh, that we have showing that hypocalcemia probably does disrupt uh, the process of eating and, and passing feed through the gut and that sort of thing. So take home, milk fever remains a problem on dairies, but we've really made great progress on that. And there's a lot of dairies I go to today that just don't hardly see it at all. But the bar's been raised. Even a 15% drop in blood calcium concentration now is linked to lots of other disorders. And so we can't be complacent. We still need to work on calcium homeostasis in postpartum cows. And that link between calcium and other problems may be mediated by disruption to immune function and to feed intake. Thank you. So there you go. Didn't realise how milk fever impacts the health of a cow. Thanks for that invaluable information, Barry. I'm Jamie Mackay, and this podcast was proudly sponsored by CalPro Bolus. See your local veterinarian for more information.